1: Love Talk Radio. Welcome to the Healthcare Whisperer Show. My name is Hari Kulsa and I am your host. I am a nurse practitioner, patient advocate, and president of Healthcare Whisperer. I can be found at Twitter at HariK108, Facebook Hari Kulsa, or at healthcarewhisperer.com. Uh, I also uh, want you to know that as of, well, as of this show, all my well, all my shows are now archived. You can get them on iTunes. You can download the podcast app for your phone or for your iPad, and you can get all the archived shows as well as the new shows. So if you want to subscribe, they'll just automatically be downloaded for you. Isn't that exciting? I was so very excited when that happened, so I'm very grateful for that. And I just wanted to let you know that this show is about providing information and tips on how to successfully navigate the healthcare system. I always find the best way is to have people tell their stories, their failures and successes, because it can help all of us. We all know how difficult it can be to get what you need from the system. And the stories that I hear and the stories that people have to tell are so wonderful and so exciting. That I just am glad that they come and they share them with me and with the listeners. Uh, if you want to call in at any time today, you can call in, uh, at 805-830-8363. And don't be shy because this is going to be another great show. And you know, we have been on a hiatus, uh, but I'm back. Yes, she's back, and Healthcare with the Healthcare Whisper Show is back. And I'm looking forward to increasing my shows to weekly. You know, everybody's got a story when it comes to the healthcare system. I also wanted all of you to know that my new website is going live tomorrow. Well, we're hoping for tomorrow. Had a few glitches, but you know how that is with websites, but it looks pretty good for tomorrow. I am so excited. I just want to thank Bridget Perez and her Trey Trey Creative team for creating such a wonderful site. I think you're going to like it too and I welcome all your feedback. So that's at www.healthcarewhisper.com. Gonna be my blog's going to be up and running again and my the radio show you can access it there also. But don't forget you can access it on iTunes now. How exciting is that? I also want to tell you that I'm going to start an audio blog. I think I've mentioned in past shows and in my written blog that my mother had a stroke about, it's just a year ago, and it's been quite a journey. You know, I've had clients that have um, gone through this journey, and I've walked it with them. But when it's your own parent, and and, or sorry, your loved one, uh, you're so much more emotionally involved with the process. And you have to, I've had to really work at separating that to get done what I needed. Um, I recently had to talk with the state because they had norovirus there and they had isolated all the people at the assisted living. They couldn't eat in the dining room. And they were like overdoing it like for 10 days where, you know, the CDC had only said it really needed to be three days. So my mother was starting to wig out. Anyway, long story short, they, I had a little conversation with the state and the facility and we worked it out so that isolation was ended. But I want to do this blog because I think there's so much information that people can learn. I've read some great books about, you know, other people have been in this journey. One that I really want to recommend is called The Bitter Season by Jane Gross. She was a, a writer for The New York Times and started a blog about her journey and it's so amazing and it's you know sometimes I read these, and it's like i i it's like I'm there, I'm walking it with her, so I think it's really important any avenue you can find uh to to get help and assistance, and I want to be able to show some of the humor that I've been able to experience during this whole journey uh so one of the other great books I you know I don't usually do a lot of books but one of the other great books that I want to recommend to everyone is called Being Mortal by Atul Gawande, and it's a really good look at the at at the long term care assisted living issues in America. And he talks about his journey with his father and his mother and with some of his clients and I think it's really it's so well written. I love all his books, but this one especially was a fast read for me. I couldn't get enough of it. The other thing that the other book that I recommend is called Can't We Talk About Something More Pleasant? And that's by Roz Chast, and she's a uh cartoonist at the New Yorker. And it's really and the book is all in cartoons. Um and it's it's fascinating. It's 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 just, you know, sometimes I wanna it's so funny I cry and I can just really identify with what she went through. But she puts a really interesting spin on it, and a heartwarming personal. And I really recommend that book. I I a friend of mine sent it to me when when this was going on and I've sent it to people and recommend it to everyone. It's a, it's it's really it's really wonderful. Uh, so that's it for today. There are others, but we'll do those, save those for another time. I just want to do, today I had an experience, so I want to do a tip of the day. And this is for all you people out there with Medicare Part B. Now, if you have Medicare Part B, that pays 80% of all outpatient services. And many of you, most of you, I would assume, have in a supplemental plan which pays the 20%. If Medicare, if Medicare, sp- pays for something, a procedure or a visit, any part of what you've recently done medically, then the supplemental plan by law has to pay for that. Lately, I've been hearing that supplemental plans have been saying, well, that's not part of your policy. Well, wrong answer. The wrong answer because if Medicare, here's the bottom line, and there's no question. If Medicare pays for it, then the supplemental has to pay for it. You don't let your insurance company tell you that they are not gonna pay. It's it's this new game I'm seeing. So don't get taken and write that check when you think you have to pay it. No, the answer is no. So with all that information, it's just so wonderful to be back on on the air with everyone to do the show and to also do the podcast. But today, I'm so excited with my guest. This is like an amazing story. And my guest today is Jade Grace. And again, I want to say this. I'll probably say it a million times during this show. Well, maybe not quite that many, but uh, it's an amazing story. Uh, First of all, Jade is my wonderful neighbor, and uh, we are regular coffee buddies. Well, we live in Seattle. We better be coffee buddies. And uh, during one of our conversations on, uh, you know, you always talk when you get to know someone, I asked her about her mother. And she she said, well, my mother was sick for most of my life. And then there was a pause. And then she said kind of nonchalantly and added that she had had polio, another break. And then she said, well, she was in an iron lung for 30 years. And I have to tell you, I thought I was going to fall off my chair because that's like an iron lung. I remember growing up as a kid because when I was young, polio—the vaccine had just come out when I was about six. But I remember the iron lung. I remember it so well. I'd see pictures in the newspaper, and I have to tell you, it scared me. The iron lung scared me to death. That thing was just this people in it, and I thought, oh my goodness, what? How, how do they do things? And then, and then I, uh, and then I. I, I, when I was talking to Jade, it, it's just an amazing story of living with someone in an iron lung. And it's such medical history. I, I can't tell you. This is, the, you know, a lot of you probably are look, scratching your head saying, iron lung? What, what, the, what the heck is an iron lung? And, you know, I'm going to have Jade, well, I've got some technical stuff here, but I'm going to have Jade really talk about that because. You know, it's uh it's a it basically what it did. It's a negative uh, ventilator that helped people to breathe when they were paralyzed from polio. And just one statistic before I bring Jade on because this story needs to be told. It's um, it's it's like you know one of those stories that you just don't hear, and it's so fascinating and wonderful. Um, where's my little thing? I think in 1959 there were 1,200 people on uh the iron lawn living with the iron lawn, and in two thousand and four there were thirty nine we don't use they don't use them anymore and uh it was mostly used for for uh you know I'm probably talking here. I should shut up because I've got this wonderful guest here, and she's gonna really tell the story that needs to be told so welcome thank you. welcome jay hi, hi, good to be here. Okay, Jade's Jade's a little nervous. Say, we're actually doing this right here in my. Usually, I have people on the phone, but I'm lucky to have Jade here with me today. And I just want to say, Jade, thank you so much for telling this story. I know it could be a little bit hard, but my goodness, what a story! Well, thank you for having me here. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, no, it's 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 really wonderful. Uh, so so tell us, Jade. How did this all come about? Tell us a story from, the like, how, you know, your mother got sick. What was that like? How, what, how, how did this all come about? It came about
0: back in 1954. There was a polio epidemic, maybe the last one. And both of my parents uh, contracted polio, first my mother, and shortly after that, my father came down with it, maybe within the the week of her getting sick. and uh, she went to a, a major county hospital where she spent many months right after that. Uh, my father had a shot of gamma uh right after they discovered what was wrong with my mother. And um, probably that's what made it so he was able to recover at home with the help of uh, my grandmother. Um Did you get it? Uh, No, I didn't. My brother and I both had these gamma globulin shots. Oh, okay. And, but we didn't get it. And what we did have was the experience of being ostracized. Uh, I was eight. My brother was seven. And wow, people were not going to send their children to school if we went to school because, you know, it was an epidemic and it was. It was a frightening epidemic. It's the type of thing that we haven't really experienced so much uh, in the last few decades, uh, where you can just contact contract it, I guess, through the air. I'm not sure how how easily it's contracted, but it was, uh, anyway, a lot of people were very frightened of it about it. And I can also remember neighbors who had large green lawns telling us. Not to walk on the sidewalk in front of their homes because they they were just scared wow. about about getting uh, getting polio so uh at that time we had just moved into a new neighborhood, and this is in California, yes. this was in Los Angeles, yeah yes. we had just moved into a na- new neighborhood, and uh fortunately, we were still at the same school, so we had this so that change wasn't so. You know, we didn't have that changed as well, but but anyway, for I I don't know, it was a couple of weeks anyway, we couldn't go to school, and uh, and then after that, there were still some reactions from people who were afraid of getting it or having their
1: children get polio. Wow, so you were you really that must have been hard as a kid to be so ostracized. Well, in the world I mean, wow.
0: Our world our world was spinning because my mother was
1: gone.
0: My father was very ill. We were in, in a new house in a new neighborhood and, um, and just everything was really rocky then. But that, yes, that certainly was an unusual experience I haven't had
1: since then. <laughs> I hope not. I hope your life hasn't been about being ostracized. <laughs> yes. <laughs> well, you moved to the right place in Seattle. They don't do that here. Yeah, it, you know, I, I it brings to mind the, the Ebola. I mean, how everybody got crazy about yeah. Ebola. Yeah, but you know, uh, yeah. So okay, so so you're you're probably thinking, what the heck here? And then your mother's your mother's gone. She's in the hospital.
0: Right. Uh, she was in a. She was. She had two types of polio, and. And she had two types of polio, and uh, she was in the hospital for, on the verge of death, really, for a couple of months until uh, her doctor actually used an experimental treatment uh, involving cobra venom, and after that, she started uh, feeling better and she wasn't on the verge of, of losing her life. But uh, she was in that hospital for several more months, and then she was in a rehab hospital, and also in the Los Angeles area uh, for uh, several months. So altogether, she was gone from her home for a year.
1: Wow, wow. And I remember, yeah, you told me this story. Um, and. You know, a year first, you're ostracized, and your mother's gone. I'm sure your father was away a lot, right? Well, you yes, he first had to recover and
0: from his case of polio, which was a whole other situation. But but he wasn't ill like she was. He didn't lose his movement and his breathing, but he was he was still quite ill. And I can remember my grandmother um, had a an old fashioned washer. That where you would put, uh, it, it had a ringer, a hand <laughs> ringer, and yeah. she would she had cut up big wool blankets, blankets into squares, and she would get them as hot as she could in the water, hot water, and then wring them out, and then put them, lay them on different parts of his body. Oh, Lord! So he he was quite ill, and he went through rehab, and then when he was well enough, uh, then he started you know, doing what he could for my mother.
1: Well, so um so did they tell you so so your mother's in the hospital and she's obviously in an iron lung. And one thing you told me that you only saw her a couple times during that time, right? You didn't get to go to the hospital well, or I actually went to the hospital
0: but not inside the hospital. Um <laughs> occ- occasionally uh, an adult took my brother and me To the hospital and we would wave at my mother who was a couple of stories up at least. It was a a very big county hospital but we were able to wave at her but we couldn't see her Um, and she was in the iron lung which a person in an iron lung looks at a mirror that's at an angle above their head and that's how they see the world around them and that's how she saw us was looking into the mirror through the getting the reflection through the window of us uh, a couple of stories down below, waving at her. So yes, it, that was uh, that was the way we visited, which wasn't frequent for a few months there.
1: Yeah. So did you did you know did they put her in the iron lung pretty quickly or was that towards the end or? Oh
0: no, it, they put her in right away because when they 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 I remember she was ill one night. She had a <coughs> bad sore throat and a fever, and I can remember the adult, my father and mother and grandmother telling me not to go in her room, which, of course, I had to get something out of her bedroom. But anyway, uh, the next day, uh, an ambulance came and took her to the hospital, and they ha- did an emergency tracheotomy and, and put her on life support mm-hmm. um, immediately,
1: yeah. And life support was the iron yeah, one. it was the iron one, yeah. Wow. Well, so, did you, as a kid, though, you didn't, they didn't tell you anything, just you learned later, or you did you hear conversations and oh, you understood it? Or? Um, I was eight, and I was told everything. Yes, you were told, yeah. So, yes. well, that's good, because a lot of times parents back then didn't didn't tell families that that, you know, right. children, I mean, that that was what was going on. So
0: now, I have a younger brother who was, uh, he, he was seven at the time, and I'm. I believe they told both of us
1: I think that's yeah. good so okay so the days arriving that you know so eventually they they're going to let her come home or you know they're going to discharge her and, and traditionally actually a lot of people just went into institutions yeah so your father must have worked really hard to have her come home What what was that like that transition from her you know from the hospital to your home well it
0: start there was um an interim period there where he brought her she he brought her home it was during the summer um a few weekends and so we kind of got used to what it would be like to have her there she would spend i don't know if it was one night or probably just one night and um and so that was kind of a taste of what it would be like when she was there and then my grandmother Lived with us while she was away, but my grandmother moved out as soon as my mother came back. And um, I, you know, I don't, I don't remember the transition period that really well. Just it was more, it was more change. Um, I can re- remember, um, of course, we started having nurses there every day, and then my father would take care of her at night, which was uh, a big process it was because there was uh, not just the iron lung, there was a rocking bed that she was put on in the daytime. It was like a hospital bed with the legs uh, elevated, um, so the knees were bent. That made, that also made her breathe. So um and there was an another little machine that helped her. To, that helped her. She always had to help out breathing, so that was a tube that went in her mouth. And uh, over time, they they developed a schedule and a routine. And part of it was at night, my mother uh, was put to bed by my father, which involved physical therapy and uh, just uh, uh, using a lift to move her from the rocking bed to the iron lung and then getting her settled for the night, which she had um, 16 pillows at one point. I'm sure it varied at times, different sizes of pillows, because she couldn't move at all. And uh, so, you know, maybe one finger was getting sore every night and that needed a pillow or her heels would not feel right. Anyway, it was quite a process getting her settled into her her iron lung. And so we settled into this routine with the nurses in the day, and my father at night, taking oh. care of her.
1: So let's get let's let's create this image for people. You know, it, it, we're making it sound very, you know, like the iron lung. Well, the iron lung was the size, the length, pretty much of. You know, it went from the top from her neck.
0: It was like a big can that you could put a person in. <laughs> I mean, they actually referred to it in those days. I think there was references to it as some type of can. And it was like a can, a horizontal can with legs and a big bellows um beneath it that that was what pumped the air was this big black bellows
1: mm-hmm.
0: and then, to get inside of it, there were portholes that and a couple of other openings that had once you opened the little door that was had a latch that you know made it um Snug. You opened that, and then there was uh, foam around those that you stuck your arm through to move, you know, to to move her do whatever you needed to do inside the iron lung. But before she was actually close, the way she got into it was that the bed part actually pulled out from the the end where the head was, so that it uh, you would you would pull this out, put the person in, slide her up, head up through the end hole, and then slide the whole plat
1: the bed part like a platform back into the can. My goodness, I mean that's a vision, you know. And and here's a, a, a young a young girl. I mean, this became a matter of fact for you. Oh yeah, yeah. Did you, and you helped with these things, did you? Oh, I, like I did. I was the
0: oldest, older child and the female child, so sure, I I helped a lot. And uh, when I was young, and um, sometimes we would have an emergency. I mean, there was there were regular things that that needed to be done, or sometimes she would. Uh, Gag and and she had a tracheotomy and she would have to be suctioned. That was probably the thing that was the biggest concern was when she had trouble with mucus because she couldn't cough,
1: and she mm-hmm. couldn't blow her nose. Right, she, was, she couldn't because she was lying flat on her back and because she didn't really have the she had no muscles. The the muscles. muscles. she was paralyzed.
0: Right. Yeah. Right. Yeah. So then they would then her she had to be. Have a tube put into that tracheotomy opening to uh, suction out the mucus, and that was uh, a fright, kind of a frightening thing for me to see that because she always was teary when that happened. Yeah, Um, but other time, you know, we other times there were things like maybe a piece of equipment not working properly, and I can remember being up in the middle of the night. Using a hand pump to keep her breathing, while my father tried, to, uh, he did was successful in getting her equipment working. Or if the power went out, we did have a generator that helped that kept her going. But still, the transition could be a little.
1: Oh my goodness! I mean, so I can just imagine the scene: the lights go out, the family's out. I mean, you must have sort of slept. I mean, as a kid, was there always that sense of worry that? Oh my God! The lights come out. I mean, did you ever like really have deep sleep? Was there ever that fear, or did you just kind of become okay? The lights are out. Right, I gotta get up now. You know, kids are waiting. well, Well, you know,
0: the actually the big generator would kick in and keep her there you know, a light by her by her and her her iron lung going. But yes, there was a sense of there was a sense that there could be um, oh, that she could be very that she could come to harm or even die, that that was always lingering because uh, because of being on life support and and like I said the the tracheotomy and the the not being able to deal with mucus was always a big concern. So yeah, there was a, a kind of a, a sense of having to be um aware of a potential yeah crisis all the so, time
1: So the other thing it sounds like you, you you as a child and I mean starting at 8 and it's probably your whole childhood you sort of lived with this idea that of death I mean you know she she could die right there at any time if something went wrong Did, did you that's, think that's, about that Oh
0: I know I, I did think about that and and uh, and there were times when uh, it could have been I would might have felt it was my responsibility For instance, when my father would go away on a trip, which he did occasionally, then I would sleep in my mother's room, and I believe I started that when I was 12. Mm. He didn't go away a lot, but then sleeping in her room, um, then I would have... It was was my responsibility, for sure.
1: So you did it on your own. He didn't ask you to do it? You just said, okay, I got to do this? Well, no, no. If he left, you felt the responsibility. Oh, I had somebody had to sleep there. Someone under. had to sleep there. That okay. was me. Oh, that was you. Okay,
0: yeah. So, so it that involved just she she did she didn't sleep well. She took sleeping pills, but it was a little hard. And she, she didn't sleep well, and any of those <coughs> emergency things could come up as well. So I I just I remember that. Um, Feeling like, well, my parents have given me a lot of responsibility. That's how it felt
1: mm-hmm. to me. Mm-hmm.
0: And and then, it, of course, you can feel good about that as well if somebody gives you responsibility when you're young.
1: Right. But well, that was quite a responsibility. I mean, it's you took on a caregiver role pretty early in your life. I mean, a lot of we you know we hear that story with children a lot, with you know in many in situations. But this one is so unique. I mean. It's, and did you ever, did you, like, have a protocol, like, if your father wasn't there and something happened, did you, like, know to call someone? The fire department. Fire department. Which um I remember... Because it wasn't 911 then, right?
0: No, but, you know, you could still call the fire department right. before that. Right, you know, you right, know? And so um I can remember doing that one time anyway. I'm usually... Usually, in the daytime, there were nurses there. Right, right, right. And um, it was only, they would go home at 6. Uh, there would usually be one nurse, and uh, she would go home at, at 6. And uh, there was also a, a cook.
1: Mm-hmm. You know, there were other people around.
0: Mm-hmm. So.
1: Okay, all right. So, I, I want to talk about this cook, because as your mother, your mother sort of adjusted. She adjusted to living in the iron law. What was life like for her? I mean, can, yeah, I guess that's the question the, from your perspective. Uh, what was life like for her? I mean, we've talked about this, so I, you know, I, I, it's fascinating to me. Well, I I know in the earlier the earlier
0: t- years of her illness that she she was just trying to survive, and and that um then she experienced of course, of all the kinds of loss one would when they couldn't move or breathe on their own. Or, you know, even her, she was a pretty woman. She had been voted girl most likely to succeed in her high school class. She had a lot of vitality and uh, was a vivacious kind of personality. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And so all of that got, Was changed because of her her condition, but but I suppose some of that was what carried her through, so that she was able to live in a condition that most of us wouldn't would not be able to. I don't think endure for for so many years. Actually, about 35 years at least. So yeah. Um. But uh, she did tell me that she learned to. Enjoy different things than when she was well, mm-hmm. and that that had made as big a difference as, as as anything. She she kind of she changed her focus from what uh, brought her happiness and joy to the things that she was able to experience happiness and joy from. Mm-hmm.
1: And so some of those things were I know you, she uh, she liked to read. Right? She she did.
0: She lo- she loved my brother and me and Aww. that was a very I'm sure that kept her going. Yeah. Um and she loved to read and she she was very uh politically minded and she also loved to read cookbooks. Um and fortunately there was a cook there. She could have her uh asked to um create the meals that she would have liked to be Cooking herself. So,
1: I'm um, so fascinating. Yeah. So, so what about what kind of meals did she want to cook? What was well, that like for you? Well,
0: sometimes <laughs> uh, we would, we as a family would go through, oh, no, another experimental uh, recipe from Gourmet Magazine. Or,
1: <laughs> which weren't always so good,
0: right? Which were not always, you know. Uh, but, you know, overall, we, We always had three courses. We always started out with a salad. This was all brought up up to her room where we ate. She had a very large room. Um, And uh, we always had three courses that were prepared by the cook downstairs. And then my brother and I would bring the food up in an elevator. And uh, I, I can remember saying, can't we just have it all brought up at once so we don't have to go running up and down? The stairs or with you know, with the elevator or whatever. Uh-huh. But um I could see now how that was the type of thing that brought her a lot of pleasure that she she could have this type of meal served to her family and
1: kinda of like a restaurant. She could be like out with her family. She yeah, she every could day. And it yeah. was it every meal or just dinner? Uh it was yes, okay. yeah. yeah. Uh, so lunch breakfast and lunch you guys ate downstairs. Um
0: yeah, and, you know, we uh, we would use my brother and I would go to school or whatever, and we would eat yeah. downstairs. And but dinner, we always ate with my parents.
1: That's mm-hmm. yeah. nice. Okay. Yeah. And so you had like you know many people. You'd sit around the dinner table and chat about your mother. Would ask you how was school. Well, she would be in her rocking bed, and my father would be next to her
0: um, with a kind of a high table and a high stool, and he would feed her as she. When Rock. she rocked, when she rocked up, he would give her a bite, and when she went back, she would chew her bite. <laughs> oh my and, God. Uh, and my brother and I sat at a, a table that uh, a card table that we put up, and then my grandmother or grandfather or my aunt or other people might uh, be there as well. Wow! And, and then later on, when she wasn't in the rocking bed as much, she would eat in her iron lung. And uh, and so then one person would sit next to her and and feed her in her iron lung, which I, I have no idea how a person can eat lying flat on their back and she did it for years. So
1: And she didn't have to have soft food, she could eat anything as long as no. she could chew it.
0: Yeah, we she there were things that would make her choke that we had to avoid, like <laughs> all the tomatoes had to be peeled. The tomato um, skins could make her choke. Uh-huh. The Lettuce had to be torn, not cut with a, shredded with a knife because somehow those would, could make her wow. choke. Uh, but in general, she was able to eat pretty much what, you know, wow person would eat. Yeah.
1: So what was, so did you, uh, did your mother stay with cooking for a while? Did she get into that? Like, was that for a big chunk of time? Oh, she always, as so I remember, yeah. she
0: always enjoyed reading uh, recipes and and then uh planning the at the beginning of every week she would plan the dinners with the cook and uh and then the the shopping list that that okay. uh, of what needs to be you
1: know. So is there any meals that stick out for you, like that your mother <laughs> that your mother like <laughs> created out of something or read or saw on T V or whatever? Well, no, we
0: you know, we but we did have we did have a. So we did have a nice variety of food, but I think that a lot of the things that uh, were in recipes were maybe experiments for when she had company over. And oh, yeah. she was experimenting with the family, we'd have, the, we, we'd have that. But we wouldn't necessarily have those on a regular basis. That might be something she was thinking about for when she had guests. So,
1: so that's something like we really need to talk about is the guests. I mean, what what I remember one of the other things that amazed me. See, I'm using that word again. That, that amazed me about your mother is that she had parties in her iron lung, was it in her lung or in the bed.
0: Well, you know, it could be in the rocking bed, but the main thing was that she had parties. Yeah. Who was on life support? She yeah. was always
1: on life support. Right. right. So what was um, it like? What 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 kind of parties did she have and what how did people react to it? I mean, it must have been like wild. Uh, come to my party and they, you know, if they didn't, I suppose everyone knew her, but what was it like? I mean, it was just a regular party. Uh, well, I you know, know, most of
0: the time they were not uh, large parties, although when I was uh, married uh, when I was uh, in my early 20s, uh, my parents had a big um, reception at the they had a big wedding reception at the house, and uh, that was a very large party, uh-huh. uh, but most of the parties were, uh, you know, 10 to 20, uh, maybe starting with six people and wouldn't be more than, a, you know, maybe 20 people at the most. They weren't big parties, mm-hmm. uh, but they were actually, for somebody in her situation, it was still amazing that she would plan would plan these parties, but they were mostly with people she knew um, before she became ill.
1: And what was it? Was it hard for them? I mean, I see it when, when people have, Okay, so her mind was still there. I mean, she was still able to carry on a conversation. Oh, yeah. she, she was still sharp. Now, one thing that happened was
0: after she became ill, some of her friends changed. She Some people could not deal with For being a couple of her closest friends, um, two or three of them just couldn't handle the situation, and they didn't go to see her when it was possible. And that was, and there were other people she wasn't as close to, who did start spending time with her, and um, you know maybe coming over and having a visit during an afternoon. And uh, but anyway, she did have a, a group of friends. That would come over. She had actually two or three different groups of friends, and and I'd say she she would have a party every few months. It wasn't maybe every two or three months. That's more
1: month. than I have. Me too, <laughs> me too. But this, I mean, it must have really helped her to have something to plan for.
0: She had the, the, the Yes, it did. She really enjoyed planning the food, and you know, even tablecloths or.
1: Play settings, that type of thing. Wow. The whole the whole shebang. Yeah. She didn't miss a beat. Everything had to be the way she wanted it. Well, that's true. Yeah. But, well, <laughs> yeah. That's another issue, right? That's another one, yeah. But, um... but that's
0: also part, I think that's also part of why she was able to carry on so long was she had a picture of how she wanted things to be and she stuck to it. And
1: Wow. That's... And she enlisted anybody she could to help her to it. So um, the other part of this story that we haven't touched on yet—I mean, there's many parts of it—but one is, is that in the summer your family went to Catalina on a boat, right? Uh-huh. To Catalina Island mm-hmm. and lived on the boat with your mother. Yeah. Wow. Tell—I mean—that let's—I I, got to hear this. This is—I mean, imagine this, folks. Here is, you know, someone in Iron Lawn And a rocking bed. And most people were living in institutions, families who had their hands tied. They didn't understand it. But here's Jay's mother, A, at home, ordering the kids around (laughs) and having parties and, you know, creating menus. And then in the summer, she's on a boat in Catalina Island, or moored at Catalina Island. Catalina Island, yeah. Okay, so let's hear this part of the story because it is... I mean, it's just so fascinating. To me.
0: Well, my father was an avid sailor, and my mother had done a fair amount of sailing with him as well. Yeah, uh-huh. uh, they spent quite a bit of time at Catalina Island, and uh, my father had a sailboat when my mother uh, was taken when they were both taken ill. But um, obviously, uh, they couldn't go anywhere. She couldn't go anywhere on a sailboat, so. He re- he really wanted to have that life again where they were, were able to go out in the boat and um he he was able to buy a boat that would accommodate a, a motor sailor, not a motor sailor, a power boat that would accommodate her and her equipment and uh the family so that we were able to live um during the summer months at Catalina Island um at a cove where uh um he had a mooring a permanent mooring and then he ended up having actually a a, a power line from the shore now, there there was no uh Catalina Island is only really settled at uh in a couple of places at um Avalon and the and the, a smaller settlement at the isthmus, so there was just a a boys' camp on the shore there, and uh, otherwise it was just nothing. But um, to the boys' camp, he was able. My father was able to get a a, a power line on the side of the cove that was on the other so, uh, the side of their boat, to the side of their boat. So. Um, that no made small big, feet. No small feet. No small feet. No. And so that was how we were, we couldn't have done it really if we hadn't had the power line uh, from right, the shore. Right, right. So uh, anyway, we would be over there for a week and at a time. And then on every Thursday, we would head back to San Pedro and there would be a new nurse and the one that was on board would... She would go, to, you know, she would go get her ever vacation and a new supply. And my father would go buy the groceries for the following week and get his mail and probably check on the house or whatever. And then the next
1: morning, the next
0: day, midday, we'd head back to Catalina. And, wow. Yeah.
1: Wow. And so your mother um you know Jay showed me two pictures one was the first houseboat mm-hmm. and then your father had one specifically designed and built uh-huh so the what the main room that's in the in the cabin uh-huh. room was was big enough it was bigger right? it
0: was it was bigger and it had a bathroom type facility behind a oh you know a sliding door that you wouldn't notice things that made it easier for to have to have her on the boat and to take care of her. Um, I I think having the first boat helped him figure out what he needed to have right. when he designed the second boat. Yeah.
1: Wow. And so on the boat, she had the rocking chair, the, the rocking bed. bed. Yes. Which, that was the main. That's what she did most days.
0: Well, in in the daytime, um, she didn't get as much up. Op- it oxygen. She didn't she couldn't breathe as well in the rocking bed but it but she did like being on it and it did um it, i think she felt freer in that. She certainly looked freer in this even though it was bed that's rocking back and forth. I think she enjoyed that more and um it also moved it made her body move in a way that just lying still in a rock in the iron lung didn't so it's probably actually good for her. Yeah,
1: and um, it it must made it feel a little clear. It did, I'm sure.
0: Not to be um, pooped up in that iron lung, which I'm sure at times, I know it would get cold. I remember putting blankets over the top of it. Even uh, she would sleep with a um, with an electric blanket over the top of it. What a
1: concept. I mean, I never would have thought that the iron lung would get cold.
0: Yes, yeah, so it would get cold. I, mean, I
1: you're mean, in a metal can. I know. And... But, yeah, I thought like the thing had heating in it. You know, like, okay, it went by your body temperature. Yeah. But no, you had to put a blanket like just like you put on a person, person and no less an electric blanket. Yeah. Uh, I mean, I'm not making fun. i just no, like, no the, the vision, cares. the image is fantastic.
0: So she might have a, a light blanket on, a very, very light cotton blanket on her. But she was her body was very sensitive and um so you know, she wasn't gonna have anything heavy like a big warm blanket on her body. Right. Um her skin was really hypersensitive I yeah. think after she became ill. Uh-huh. Um, but yes, and I think she would get hot in there as well. Mhm. But she would be on that rocking bed between I'd say maybe two o'clock and on the boat anyway, and two o'clock and about Ten o'clock, something like that, and the rest of the time she was still in the iron lung or when she was having her physical therapy, she was on the rocking bed, getting air through a tube that went into her mouth, but the rocking bed was flattened out, and then she would have her bath and physical therapy and that mm-hmm. that sort of thing
1: and so in the summer, so every day physical therapy oh that. absolutely every day and i i don't
0: I don't remember her ever having a bed sore.
1: Which wow. is pretty remarkable.
0: Yeah. Pretty remarkable. Yeah. yeah. So she had physical therapy, um, yes,
1: every single day. Wow. Uh, and um, that was both at home and on and, the oh, boat. oh yeah,
0: and he, my father did. <laughs> my father did her physical therapy every night. Oh, at night on yeah. the boat. Uh, on the boat and at home.
1: So a physical therapist didn't come. But no. Oh uh, okay. she had just at a, the beginning. Just at the beginning so he
0: could learn what to do. Wow. And uh that she had a woman who would come in the early times of to help her learn how to try to help her learn how to breathe a little bit on her own. And there is this uh this sort of gulping type gulping air type thing called frog breathing that uh she tried to do but she really it was really too much work, so uh wow she she had to have the, the life support.
1: So, how old so you did when did you left home at eighteen i how, i left, what happened when you left
0: when i left well they carried on uh-huh. uh she had nurses and uh the first year i was gone i went to i was actually seventeen i <laughs> turning eighteen. I went to a college a university in Los Angeles, and uh, and then after that I did some traveling, which um, my father wasn't too neither one of them were keen on me doing not really doing much traveling, but I seemed to have it in my blood. So um, yeah. and so after that I I would communicate with my mother and father and visit, but I didn't really live there after I was... I lived there a brief period a few months uh, when I was 18 after uh, after my first year of school. And
1: so, I mean, uh, the beauty of that is that you didn't feel that you needed to stay. I mean, other people might
0: have... Well, yes, if they hadn't had the resources, my parents hadn't had the financial resources right. they had, um, they did not want me to go. My father was not happy about that.
1: Mm-hmm. Um,
0: and I, my brother ended up being more involved over the years, at, especially after my father died. Right. My father died uh, about 10 years before my mother died. Mm-hmm. So, um, at that point, I was living in Northern California and he was in Los Angeles when my parents were. My brother was in Los Angeles when my parents were. So, um, Anyway, when after my father died, I did consider moving to Los Angeles and thought it might be, uh, you know, in the cards there for... for <laughs> it might be necessary for me to move from Northern California back to Southern California, but uh, it wasn't. So that...
1: Yeah, that's. I mean, I just think you know there could have been a, a lot of pressure. On you, so it took a lot of courage on your part. I mean, it was you know it I, it's a great story, but it's a child it, living. It, you know, it's a hard story. It's hard that you know you 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 learn to do things like move your mother. You were part of the team at night that helped move your mother from the rocking bed to the iron lung and. I mean that's that's a lot, and I'm sure did your brother participate in much, or is it mostly you at that time? You when, when
0: we were younger, I was, I was a, you know, as I said earlier, I was the older child. Right. I was a female, so I was more involved with taking, helping take care of her, and um, just like you know, staying with her when my father was gone, or if something was wrong. He, and my father needed some help, and there weren't any. wasn't The nurses were gone. He was more likely to call me because I was older, so right.
1: right.
0: I, I can remember. I said, I don't know if I said it or not, pumping, pumping the, pumping the right. hand pump for her right. in the middle of the night, right. That sort of thing. So, um, but yes, that was always that that certainly was always on the back of my mind, whether I was there or not. That um, my mother was in this situation, in this, you know, in the condition she was in.
1: So looking back on it, as we get to the end here, um, what what were your reflections on this experience? Um, you know, what, what do you think about and how? You know, you can you speak a little bit about you know maybe how it affected you, your worldview or not? You know, I mean, maybe it didn't. You know, maybe you just, but can you give some reflections on looking back at now after so many years.
0: Well, I can certainly say that I found my, since my, my value seemed to be as a caretaker primarily (laughs) because of the circumstances. Um, I've certainly, that's certainly been, uh, uh, a a large part of, of my life, just, you know, kind of identifying that way. Um, Then that's for myself. As far as my mother, I really think back now how, you know, how remarkable it was that she could wake up every day to the situation of not being able to move or breathe and having to be so vulnerable and so dependent. And um, she didn't have a great immune system, so she would get sick a lot easier than other people, and often she had something else going on with her body besides the the uh, paralysis. And uh, so, I think it's just that kind of the day in, day out uh, bravery or courage that she had to to carry on right. and find find. Uh, Pleasure, value in herself and in life, all those years, um, and that we're all different. But maybe for somebody else, it wouldn't be worth it to live that way. But for her, it was, and um, and that is a lot of stretching, in you yeah. know, yeah.
1: to be able to do that. Yeah, yeah. I mean, it's, I imagine you think about it. I mean, you must think about it a lot some. Um, you know,
0: probably because I haven't told you about it, you <laughs> have been thinking
1: about it more, but, you know, but in your life it's sort of been probably a thread that sometimes you think about, like, wow.
0: Well, you know, and always along with all that was that there's been a degree of suffering. Yes. So there's there was always this uh, consciousness about uh, somebody I love, whether I was whether as a young person or away uh, living elsewhere, um, I was always aware that somebody I cared about very deeply was suffering. And uh, that didn't really end until she passed away. Mm -hmm. You know? Uh, But what can you do? That's just, we all have things in life that we... That we uh, live with, that maybe wouldn't be what we would choose, but uh, right, right. And, and, then,
1: and then of course we we grow from those things, right? Yeah, and I can I can I can say that Jade is a very compassionate person. She's very compassionate and is able to share love, which I think is something you learn from this experience that love is on many levels. You know, you couldn't hug your mother. That's true. You couldn't really, you know. A lot of times, I didn't want to hug my mother, <laughs> but you didn't have a choice. You no, know. I couldn't hug my. So, and my mother couldn't hug me. No. You know, that, no yeah. No, no. Well, Jade, I have to say, I mean, I, I, nobody called in, but I, you know, they'll people will listen to this. This is a remarkable story, and I thank you so much. You know, thank you for the the visuals. I mean. It was a great – I thank you so much um, for taking the time and sharing. You're very welcome. I've enjoyed staying time with you. (laughs) Well, good. I'm just going to shut down if you want to sit there for a minute, and then we'll be done. And um, so, everyone, that was the amazing story of Jade. And um, if you have any questions, you can email me at heal, H-E-A-L, at com. If you want to get me to get a question to Jay. Um, if you want to look up about the Iron Lawn, uh you can just Google it. Uh there's actually a an exhibit at the Smithsonian. It's such in the medical history department. Um so if you have any questions, please don't hesitate. Uh also I want to thank you all for uh listening and downloading this podcast. And I'll be looking forward, Uh, my next guest is going to be Michelle Rosenthal. Uh, uh, She's been on before, and she is going to be speaking about life after trauma. As you know, she's an expert in PTSD, and she's worked very hard with our servicemen, as well as many, many others, and herself um, recovered from PTSD and made her life's work to help others. So that will be in two weeks. And I look, you know, don't miss that one, and you'll be able to, uh, if you want to find out when it is, you can uh, send me an email, and I'll sign you up for our email, our our newsletter. And anyway, everybody, have a great uh, week and a great weekend, and I look forward to uh, being on again in two weeks. And don't forget about my audio blog, which is going to start on Friday. Best to all. Thanks. Bye-bye.
0: test your luck in the shadowy world of the godfather slot someday i will call upon you to do a service for me play the godfather now at chumpacasino.com welcome
1: to the family
0: vgw group no purchase necessary void where prohibited by law see terms and conditions 18 plus
1: don't you love an extra hundred dollars in your pocket